Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 828 from Monday, August 10th, 2020. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your tips, your cool stuff found, your questions. We share it all. We try to answer the questions. We add some context. We add some tips of our own. We allow ourselves to take a few tangents here as the uh, muse strikes us. The goal being for each of us to learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include BBEdit at barebones.com, Burrow at burrow.com slash MGG, where you get 75 bucks off your first purchase and cashfly at mac.cashfly.com. We'll talk more about all three of those later in the episode. For now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How you doing, Mr. Today? Mr. Today? No, Mr. John Mr. F. Braun. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you are Mr. Today. Well, I, I don't know. I didn't look at the list. I don't, uh, I could well be. Yeah, but, uh, Got through a little wind we had early in the week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, that was something here in New England and elsewhere. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. They actually, yeah, I saw this. Uh, a tornado actually touched down uh, in the town next to me. Wow. For a very uh, short period, EF1, I guess, okay. you know, first category. So, yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw it's it. pretty good. And it's pretty exciting to drive around with no traffic lights because you know what people do? Whatever the hell they want. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we're not just supposed to treat them like four-way stops? We just It's just free for hey, all? Hey, <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. I thought so. don't get it. Yeah, well, you know, now you know. There's potentially one new thing everybody's learned. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. We, um, we were up in upstate Vermont where... It also blew through pretty heavily. We were right on Lake Champlain and uh, with a, a little Airbnb that we rented and it was good. They had some outdoor living space there for us too. So we weren't just trapped in the house all day, but um, watching the storm kind of blow across the lake was pretty cool. Thankfully we didn't lose power mm -hmm. there, uh, nor did we lose it at home. Surprisingly other, other sections of our, even just our neighborhood did, but um, it flickered here. All my devices sent me various alerts that, you know, on UPS mm -hmm. power, off UPS power. I highly recommend, well, two things. I highly recommend if you have any sort of, well, electronics in your house, which if you're listening or watching this, then you definitely do put them all on UPSs. I put our TVs on UPSs. I put our, um, our, obviously my computers, my disc stations, especially, uh, you know, all those things are on, on battery backup units to protect against the spikes and surges and blips and all that stuff in the power. Mm -hmm. But um, I plug my Synologies, also my Macs, but my Synologies into the UPS via USB. And that way it knows that it's on power, just like your Mac can. Uh, if you do that, there'll be a new little thing in uh, the energy saver panel where you can tell your Mac, okay, if you're on power, you know, on battery power for more than five minutes, go ahead and shut down. There's all kinds of criteria you can use. But it really can save your stuff so that your stuff powers down appropriately. But with my Synologies, I have them give me uh, email notifications when they go on and off uh, battery power. And so there was there was a day last week where I had many, many of those emails. But um, but it never it, it was it would be off for, you know, it would just be blips on and off. So 
thankfully. Yeah, it's good. Should we do the show, John? Or is it just going to be this? I'm fine either way. Um, Doesn't matter. Yeah, I did a, uh, what happened? My Synologies didn't power, my my computer is set up so that it'll come back on after a power failure. Um, Okay. But uh, the Synologies didn't for some reason. And one of them, so I had to turn them back on manually. One of them, I guess, powered down when it was active. So it had Mm. to, you know, rebuild. You need a UPS, man. Who's there? Yeah. Seriously. Shop around. Those Amazon, like, so there's two brands. I think I'm I'm jumping ahead Mm -hmm. in the show here, but um, there's two brands of UPS that I I have had really good luck with. And one of them is Mm -hmm. APC, right? Because, you know, they've been making these forever. Um, And, and, and they're, they're great. Like no problem. The other one that I tried kind of on a lark a couple of years ago is Amazon basics makes Hmm. uh, you know, they sell a UPS and it's great. It's got USB connectivity or it can, I mean, they sell different models. I'm sure they might make one that doesn't, you can check for that. But, um, but yeah, they, and they're, you know, it's been rock solid, the battery and it's been great. Um, you do need to make sure your batteries in the UPSs stay up to date. You can replace them. You know, you can always just order a, a replacement battery or you can replace the whole UPS if you so choose, but, um, mm-hmm. makes a big difference, man, to, to just peace of mind wise to know that like, you're not going to have potential damage to your file system on your Synology. Cause can you imagine? Like, I don't even, I don't want to yep. think about that. So yeah so anyway uh weathering the storms okay um i have had this problem a couple of times and i have a quick tip to solve it and i've seen other family members with it so i'm assuming we're not alone if you have a gmail account and you're checking it the imap way on your phone not the like gmail oauth way I've seen it now and it happened to me again last week where I can check happily on Wi-Fi. But when I try to check email or my phone tries to check email in the background, uh, when I'm on LTE, it says cannot connect to the mail server. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I've seen this before. And last week I finally had, you know, it's a flash of inspiration and it worked. The when you're connecting via IMAP, you're using the insecure method, right? Because it's not using OAuth tokens. You're actually sending a password, albeit encrypted, but you're sending a password across. And uh, sometimes it locks that out and you have to go through and do what Gmail calls their reset capture thing, where you, you just, you, you do a, you log in, you do a capture thing, allow it to to do it, and then it's fine. And for me, I did this unlock capture thing from uh, from LTE, and from that point forward, even though I moved around, it wasn't like a fixed IP address or anything. But somehow, that was what it needed to uh, to hmm. you know open the floodgates and and let me check mail in in either scenario, which obviously makes a big difference. So I put a link in the show notes to the page at Google for this unlock capture thing. So if you're ever, and I've, I've had this trouble on my computer too, but in this case, it was on my phone, very specifically only on LTE, not on Wi-Fi was hundred percent fine. LTE, no bueno uh, until I did this. And then it, it's been fine ever since. So weird. I know, but you know, we'll, uh, we don't, it's not ours to question why, but you know, it does remind me, I think a year from now, June of 2021. So less than a year from now, 
I, I think is when Google will no longer allow that type of connection and you can do it the other way from mm. your phone. But the thing is, I have one Google account to into which, well, let's say all of my mail comes. That's not entirely true, but lots of my mail comes for different addresses. The Apple mail app on iOS will not. And I think even Mac OS, but I need to test this again. Uh, but the, it, in iOS 13, I haven't tested it in 14. Uh, the Apple mail app in iOS 14, 13 and before will not allow you to put extra from addresses on a traditionally connected Gmail account. Uh, you have to connect as an IMAP account in order to be able to put like, you know, different from addresses. And I have different from mm. addresses. You know, one of my from addresses, John, is feedback at MacGeekCab.com. But I don't use that all the time. I just use it some of the time. So. Wow. I think I heard you say feedback at MacGeekCab.com. That's right. Sometimes from the list. I want to select feedback at MacGeekCab.com. If I connect to Gmail the OAuth way, I can't do that. So that's no good. So I got to figure something else out. I might move away from Gmail or Google uh, apps for domains as my, as my provider, because they're, they're not going to be compatible with my life anymore. So anyway, that's that. Should we keep moving here? Yeah. Maybe you should um, put your uh, certificate on there. Oh, we'll talk about that next week. Cause I want to have the article updated oh. before uh, it's, it's, but it's on the list for next week's show. Yes. Mail certs are coming back, folks. Mr. John F. Braun is on the case. Uh, yes. All right. Um, but yeah, because that process is a little different. I don't know if you yet put your new shiny certs on your phone, but thank goodness it's different. You can do it from the files app now. Yes. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Yeah, I think I think uh, Jeff Butts is going to write up the uh, he's going to update all of our articles about how to do that. And once we have that, then we'll, and he'll do that this week. And so we'll talk about it next week on the show. Oh, so we have nice. a place to point everybody because it's going to be confusing and it's like mm -hmm. better to have like better to have the conversation and then say, but go there, follow these instructions. So right. that's what we will do. But it's coming. Email certs. S mime certs are back. John found a free place to do them. So we'll talk about it next week. Yeah, yeah it's good. For now. <laughs> right. Right. For now. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it lasts the week so that we don't, we're not lying about next week's show. Right, right. Uh, let's see. Listener John has a quick tip to share after my not so quick tip and tangent. Uh, he says, and it's a little geeky, but he says, I noticed today and a few times in the past that Time Machine was backing up a curiously large amount of data. Today, it was 41 gigs, even though I had not added more than a few K of new data since the last backup. Uh, and so he did some research and he found that uh, he, he, he ran a command, which I will put in the show notes. It's a, a command called FS underscore usage is is what he ran. And uh, and this command shows you and there are there are other apps you can use to get this information, but never hurts to have the terminal command. So it's it's a, a certain way of invoking FS usage. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes so you can just copy and paste it if you want. Um, this is from from listener John and we have not tested this command, but it looks right to me. So um, but it shows you an output that that lists all of the things that it is um, that the time machine, you know, the backup D process is touching. And one of the things was a set of backblaze files. And so it was backing up 
uh, all of the Backblaze temporary backup files. Backblaze uh, is, is I, I think it's pretty smart about what it does. It stuffs all of the data that it wants to back up into a temp folder and then sends that up to the Backblaze cloud so that if you're changing files or whatever, there's no contention for any of that because it can sort of do it asynchronously, which is good. Um, but the um, in in library uh, root of the drive, so slash library slash Backblaze dot BZPKG is where all of this stuff was. So he just excluded that from his Time Machine backup. So the tip is exclude your Backblaze temp folders uh, from Time Machine. Because, because that's, you know, you probably don't need to back those up. They're, they're already being backed up and they're already a duplicate of what you have on the drive, presumably. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I exclude my photo library because it's multiple gigabytes. Wait, yeah. And also backed up elsewhere for you, right? Like iCloud and also probably your Synology, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's why. Yeah. yeah. Because I use iCloud photos. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And uh, virtual machines. I typically don't back those up yep. uh, with Time Machine. Do you sync those to like your disk station another way to archive them or something? Um, yeah, I got a few other things. Either they're on my clone and yeah, I think uh, I also upload those to uh, to the Synology. That's good. Cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. We, um, we've, we've been collecting a slew of questions about podcasts and audio and things like that. So uh, today we're going to go through those and see how many of these we can address for all of you. The first comes from listener Brian, who says, I recently got a fifth gen iPod video. Um, I stuck a 256 gig SSD in it. And now I want to fill it up with the podcast that I watched and listened to while I was growing up, including Mac geek Gabby says, I think I've been listening since double digit episodes. He says, I felt this made my question extra appropriate to ask. How does one download every episode of a podcast? He says, from what I've seen, Mac geek Gab's RSS feed only goes back to episode 720 or so. Uh, this was earlier in July. I told you we've been collecting these questions. It says, which is relatively recent, uh, and your website archives seem to go back to 611. Other podcasts, such as MacBreak Weekly, do list all of their shows online, so I suppose I could figure out the URL format and write a bash script to download them. But his question is, how can I download every episode of Mac Geek Cab, uh, which I will rephrase as, is there a full feed of all Mac Geek Cab episodes? And the answer is yes, we have one. Uh, I'll link to it, but it's um, the 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 link is you know macgeekab.com slash rss slash mgg underscore all dot xml. And there's a couple of reasons that we don't put every episode in the main feed. Maybe we could now, but um, Apple's engine did not like having that many episodes in the feed for Apple Podcasts or iTunes Podcasts. So I think we limited it to a hundred and something, you know, for, and it, and it just kind of rolls them out as new ones are added. So that's why that isn't there in the main feed as to why you can't find them on the site. They are there. All the articles are there, but if you are just scrolling back through the Mac Ecab archive, uh, you only see back to where we migrated from our previous publishing system to WordPress uh, but they are all there in search. They're just not there as part of that kind of, you know, scrolling archive because the getting those two publishing systems to talk to each other simply wasn't worth it at the time. And, and as every day goes by, it becomes less worth it. But, but the articles and show notes and all of that stuff, including episode one, 
um, are all there, which wasn't called Mac Geek Cab. Trivia question. What was it called? You can email us at the uh, previously mentioned feedback at MacGeekCab.com address. So, uh, so yeah, so we've got a full feed for you. It's, um, and I think it's linked from the, the main MacGeekCab.com page too. that, that full feed. So there you go. You can listen to them all, including that first one. Ooh, it was rough. Every now and then it comes up. Like if I'm shuffling John and I hear it and it's like, oh man, like our pacing was just like glacially slow. <laughs> But it was, you know, it was, it was we had to do it. You got to just get it out there mm-hmm. to anybody that wants to start a podcast. Just start. It'll be terrible. Probably ours was. And then mm-hmm. it'll get less terrible over time. We're still working on it. So Good. Yeah. Shall we, shall we move on? Okay. All right. Um, do you have anything to add to that? No. Okay. Uh, let's see. Where are we? Listener David asks, uh, Last week, my family was out of town. I had background music streaming from my iPad to several uh, speakers over Wi-Fi. Libratone Zip. I don't know about those speakers. Anyway, Wi-Fi speakers. Uh, this is when I sat down to eat dinner, I flipped my iPhone in and began streaming Mac Geekab on Overcast. Since the Libratone was running from my iPad, I had music setting my mood plus good conversation. It was great. Yes, I agree. It was luscious to have dinner together, David. Socially distanced both temporally and physically, of course. Uh, I wonder whether there is some way to do both over my iPhone with AirPods. Are there apps that would let me merge and volume control both background music as well as foreground podcasts? My exercise walking would be even better this way. So that's, that's really interesting. You want to hear, say, this show with some nice little music in the background. Um, huh. Um, I don't know how this would be doable. This may quickly become a geek challenge. I think David's right though. It would have to be a third party app that was built to draw from these two sources and, and mix it together. I don't think you can have two audio apps like on your Mac. You could have two audio apps running simultaneously and, and that's that. But in terms of a podcast, uh, or any two audio sources. I mean, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Any thoughts come to mind, John? Hmm. Never tried it. Yeah, no. me neither. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, there's, um, gosh, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but there are audio, multi-track audio recording apps for, iOS and there's one that begins with F and it is completely escaping me at the moment, but I feel like running. So maybe somebody in our chat room at live.macgeekab.com can, uh, can help me remember, but um, I, you know, doing something like that where you, that is what you want, right? A multi track mixer. And, and so you could load a podcast audio file and a song into that on separate tracks, hit play. And then, you know, adjust the levels and you do you, right? You could have three podcasts playing at once. That would require a lot of mental acuity um, or simply punting and, and just enjoying this, the cacophonous sound of the voices. But, um, but yeah, I think that would be it. Why well, can't I remember the name of that app? Uh, iPad audio uh, multi-track. It's, gosh, I've used it before too. 
what is it called? Multitrack Studios. Man, I don't know. It'll come to me, I swear. Like, you know what? what? GarageBand would do it on the iPad. That yep. would be one way. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that would that would certainly work. I'm trying to think of of uh of others, but and does but, Rogue Amoeba have something? If anybody did, I would think they would. No, I know. That's the, the that's the thing. They they do not. Um hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I but a garage why not garage band? Because you can load multi tracks into that. And you could even you can open GarageBand files on your Mac, so um, that uh, you know you could you could build it on your Mac and then just blast it across iCloud, and you'd be potentially in good shape. So I don't know. Yeah, interesting. I I love thinking about these kinds of things. It's fun. Okay, ah, air conditioner wants to make noise. I really got to fix that rattly thing that it does. But alas, I will live. Okay. All right. Uh, shall we go to Andrew, John? Yes. Okay. Andrew asks, uh, let's see, there we are. I just recently changed to Catalina and then realized I didn't know how to import or add previous podcasts I had while using iTunes into the podcast app or any other podcast app for that matter in the Mac. I wish that they made Overcast for the Mac. So the question how do I get my previous podcasts into the podcast app? Again, one that requires a little bit of cogitation here. Um, as you upgrade from you know, a prior OS, presumably Mojave to Catalina, the for me, the podcasts that I had in iTunes were automatically subscribed in the podcast app on Catalina. However, those same podcasts were also automatically subscribed in the podcast app on my phone. And that's because uh, I choose to sync my podcasts with iCloud. And you can do that in settings on either device. So that is one way of sort of addressing this is syncing them across iCloud. And then, and then once they're in iCloud, they'll, they'll be everywhere. So, I, I mean, I think that's the easiest way. There are some third-party podcasts app available for the Mac. Uh, Overcast is not one of them, at least not yet, although who knows what Marco has planned. Probably not, given that he hasn't done it yet. But, um, but I know Downcast is available for the Mac, so, and that will also do your syncing. So maybe that's, uh, maybe that's one way of doing this. Any thoughts on that one, Mr. Braun? No, I checked, and uh, yeah, I guess it's uh, part of, iCloud because yeah. the, they were on all my devices and I didn't have to do anything. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. It is, I, you know, it, iCloud, I get it wanting to kind of be a, a there's, there's a level of technology, technological purity where, you know, you're not relying on the cloud for these things. However, uh, in terms of reliability for that kind of stuff, especially Apple's own stuff, iCloud's pretty good. It's not perfect. I mean, you know, reference back a couple of weeks to our conversation about reminders and the, the, the disastrous path several of us had to go through to get that working. But, you know, by and large, it really does work, especially for these kinds of things where it's, you know, very specific types of data and um, and those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I, I have come to rely on it for those sorts of things. 
So anyway, any, uh, any, anything else to add my friend? Oh, we're good. Cool. All right. Uh, Allison asked, and uh, let me see if I can get uh, the question up here. Yeah. Uh, I heard you mentioning the idea of moving to a Thunderbolt audio interface. This is intriguing to me, not because of latency, but because when I'm creating video tutorials, I get a lot of clicking, uh, which is generally a buffer problem. Uh, she says, you mentioned age ago, ages ago, that, that was because I use a USB audio interface. I spend a lot of time re-recording bits uh, of this and that because of this and it's most tiresome and Allison, this is Allison from Podfeet. She also does videos for screencasts online. She says, I'm interested in the smallest, simplest Thunderbolt interface I can find. And for obvious reasons, I don't want to spend a house payment on this. I found the universal audio arrow for 500 bucks. Um, it's a, that's a two channel Thunderbolt interface. She says one of my very simple set of requirements is that I have a hardware mute button the big round volume dial on the front can be clicked in and it's for muting, but it says it's to mute monitoring. I assume that just means you wouldn't hear anything from the mics, but they still would be recording. Yeah, exactly. Um, she said, so really with a threshold in the sub $500 range, are there any other Thunderbolt three audio interfaces you know of? So I have moved to Thunderbolt audio here in the studio, as I mentioned a while back, what used to be a hybrid setup of, of analog mixing and, and digital routing, I'll say has now moved pretty much a hundred percent. I mean, my voice is still analog and I haven't figured out how to change that. So, uh, so you still hear the air conditioner when it's making noise over there. But, um, but other than that particular spot in the chain, this mic is now plugged directly into a Thunderbolt audio interface. And from there it's all digital. And I have, as I mentioned, the, the, um, I'm using a platform M plus external control surface so that, uh, so that I have, uh, faders so that I can control my volume up and down and, and, you know, mix John and I together and all that stuff. But, uh, but that's just controlling logic inside the computer and the Thunderbolt audio interface that I'm using is the Presonus quantum 2626. It is the one of the least expensive, Thunderbolt audio interfaces that exists in the well period, but also it is absolutely the least expensive one that exists with uh, eight inputs on it, which, and then you can expand it out. I actually have two breakout boxes uh, elsewhere here in the room in the studio so that I have actually 24 channels of audio in and out. And then I could do two more, which is why they call it the 26, 26, but this is, I think 700 bucks. Um, the universal audio interface is, I think the least expensive of all the Thunderbolt interfaces at 500. Uh, that's only a two channel box. And then you get every other Thunderbolt interface is in the like 1500 to $3,000 range to start. And, and you can go up from there. The beauty of Thunderbolt is twofold. Uh, number one, it is high bandwidth so you can do things like 24 you know channels of audio all around whereas with a usb interface uh at least right now nobody's doing that i think it maxes out at about 16 you can get to 18 or sometimes 20 if you cheat but um but thunderbolt has all that bandwidth also because it's not actually going through any sort of interface like usb or firewire the latency is much much lower and uh and personas Personas claims that theirs is the lowest latency of all Thunderbolt interfaces. Um, that may or may not be true. I mean, it may be, but it's like 
it adds less than a millisecond of delay to the scenario where that's helpful is it means you can increase your buffer size and still have very, very low latency. And when you increase your buffer size, you avoid those nasty pops and clicks that happen when the Mac needs to catch up and reset its buffer and you get this little clicking sound, right? That's what that sound is. Now, it's it's been a fascinating path being podcasters for the last 15 years because when we started out, the only way to mostly and not completely avoid that buffer reset uh, was to use Firewire. And and where you get this buffer reset is when you do what we want to do, which is monitor the audio back from the computer in our ears. So we're hearing this stuff in very, very real time. So the, the smaller the buffer, the lower the latency, the better, because otherwise I hear myself on a delay and that gets weird. Um as an aside, I got so used to the delay that I needed to have with uh, USB, John, that weeks ago, months ago, maybe now when we moved to Thunderbolt, the delay was too short. I, I was hearing my I, like it was it, I needed to artificially increase the buffers. And then week by week, I sort of, you know, chopped them down to the point where now I'm I'm OK with hearing myself much closer to real time than I ever had before. It was very bizarre thing to go through. Cause I went through it on the other side, obviously when, when we had to, um, but started with firewire and then not that long ago, maybe three, four, five years ago, we found that Apple, you know, had been spending a whole lot more time engineering for USB than for firewire audio and USB actually became more reliable and, and less poppy and clicky, but it would still happen. Uh, I have not had that experience. Knock on wood. Hang on. Uh, with Thunderbolt largely because I have, I'm using larger buffers than I would need to here because I can get this thing down. I think to, you know, four or five milliseconds, John, uh, at the moment, I think I'm at like 12. So there's lots of extra processing room. And also I'm on a, you know, eight core iMac here. So, um, that helps keep it moving along and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, th but Thunderbolt interfaces aren't as inexpensive as they should be. And maybe now that we have, you know, USB 3 with USB-C ports on our Macs, maybe there's an option for some of those audio interfaces uh, to use more bandwidth. Um, but I don't think you're not ever going to get around the latency issue of of a usb interface because it's just another thing in the middle right thunderbolt effectively is plugging straight into the motherboard as close to straight in as you can whereas the usb interface in your computer is plugging straight into the motherboard and then you're plugging into that so there, there is that translation layer and that takes time so so there you go but the um the u audio ones are interesting they have um they have a uh, a processor in them so that like you can do effects on board and even control the voltages of the preamp from the Mac. So it can like, you know, you can buy plugins. I could, I could use a plugin here in, in logic that would artificially via software, make it sound like I was going through uh you know, a vintage uh, mic preamp or something because they, they had different voltages or maybe some variable voltage things or whatever. And it, that might color the sound in a certain way. And you might like that, but that would all be, sort of emulation in software after the fact. So taking the the clean raw signal that I'm getting in through this interface and then messing with it. The universal audio interfaces have a, both a DSP and voltage controls 
for their preamps inside the interface. So the plugin actually tells the interface to change its voltages and truly emulate those things. So probably doesn't matter for a podcaster where you actually just want clean sound, but, um, but it's an interesting thing for musicians. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're looking to sort of capture different vibes or whatever, UA is doing some cool stuff, but, um, but probably not what you want for a podcast hardware mute buttons. Um, rolls makes one. I can't remember it off the top of my head, uh, but I will, it's an inline XLR mute button that is relatively quiet. I am told. So, um, so that may be what you, what you want. So there you go. Yeah. Any thoughts on this, Mr. Braun? No, I'm, uh, I'm still, uh, happy with this little, uh, Yamaha here. It oh, that's right. Does the trick. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still on a USB with this. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 You know, we gotta, we gotta, maybe we, maybe it's time. But to, maybe I need Thunderbolt. Do I, I need You might need it. That's the thing, John. I need it. Yes, <laughs> that's the thing. But the only way to do it is, well, either the UA one or this Personas one. Um, the UA one's small. The Personas one's a, the, that I have is a 1U rack size thing. So, but I mean, it's fine. Oh, it sits, okay. it sits under my monitor. It's like, it's actually kind of nice to have it there. So, yeah, it's fine. <sighs> All right. Uh, let's see. Um, you know, while we're on the subject of um, of of Thunderbolt and all of that, this conversation, we had part of this conversation when we were talking about the um, the new Apple Silicon Max and all that stuff. And there was initially a lot of concern. Apple has thankfully addressed this in a very clear way. There was some concern that because Apple moved away from uh, or is moving away from Intel chips to Apple's own chips that they would be abandoning Thunderbolt, which is an Intel cre uh, Intel sold technology. Well, Apple helped create Thunderbolt. Um, and yes, it is an Intel tech, but Apple was very much involved in helping create it. And there's a lot of people that use it. And Apple has since made it clear that yes, we will be supporting Thunderbolt uh, three on uh, you know, on Apple Silicon Max, but it's also good to remember that because this probably will come up and probably be confusing in the future. So you, we can all be ahead of the game. The USB four spec includes Thunderbolt three inside it. I know this seems very, you know, the, the family tree of this is now like a bunch of, you know, squiggly lines, not even circles, but, but USB four, is over a USB-C port and among all the other things that are included in USB four is the capability to transmit Thunderbolt three data streams. So in theory, everything, everybody's going to be covered as the future comes because presumably everybody will move to USB four. I would think any, any thoughts on that, Mr. Brown? <clears throat> nope. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's good. They include it because yeah, Intel, um, yeah, Intel, uh, and Apple and, and some others, I guess. Some others. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. just the two of them. I think you're right. Yeah. Didn't they originally want to do it over fiber and then decided eh, that that's going to be a pain. That sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was uh, proposed for the, uh, initial implementation, but then they were like, yeah, people Forget aren't it. really going to want to do, do that. So let's use copper. 
So they just, so then, yeah, just run it over USB. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Interesting. All right. We have, uh, we have a couple more audio questions here, and then we get a ton of follow-ups, so um, I'm eager to get to all of these. But it's, that's just what we love about the show. Uh, Andrew writes, is it possible to use the Mac as the input for a microphone, which then goes out to a Sonos as a loudspeaker type of setup? It is being thought of as a potential solution for teaching in a larger classroom where the instructor wears a mask and people in the back need to hear the instructor. Plus, the instructor can use the computer at the same time. So the answer is yes. Again, this this easily could be a geek challenge. And if anybody has any thoughts, uh, please share them. My thought on this is if your Sonos is one of the the ones that is AirPlay compatible and all the current ones are and and really anything sold in the last, I think, five years, six years uh, is as well, then theoretically, yes, this is possible. Rogue Amoeba's airfoil is built to do this and will do it perfectly, allowing your Mac to easily target a an AirPlay device of which the, the Sonos could be one. Um, but you can, using system preferences sound, you could also get there depending on how you're routing your audio from the mic itself. That's where things get a little interesting because you need to take sound from this source and send it there. But air, a combination airfoil might just do it for you. Um, but if not, then uh, audio hijack along with something like airfoil, both from from Rogue Amoeba would would do this. And And there's probably other ways, too. But, you know. We know what we know. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that, John? So you could, uh, if you want to do uh, karaoke, uh, by yourself, you that's could do this essentially what this is. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, you're essentially creating a karaoke setup and yeah. And you sending whatever you want as the audio. I like it. <laughs> that's awesome. You could, you could just like bust out in the middle of a lecture to karaoke and, and like lean in to, you know, all this, this, well, we had yeah. to set this up. So I'm know. not up on what software you would use for karaoke though. I don't. Yeah. I wonder, I haven't done any karaoke stuff from the Mac. I'm sure stuff exists. I mean, this setup, like you said, would absolutely do it. The question is, is there something more purpose built? Because if there is, then this might be the key. So oh, that's interesting. Interesting all right uh yeah fun i love this stuff uh all right Jin asks um my question is let's see where it is yeah here it is here it is for a podcast setup with two mics face to face on one macbook pro what should you use for a complete setup what mics what software everything so um for me, if I were to do this and this is so this is essentially the setup that John and I would use when we didn't have to socially distance from one another. Uh, but when we were at like trade shows and things like that, if we were going to record in the same room, what you're asking is this setup one computer sort of managing the whole thing two microphones plugged in via USB and then just software. So I would use two uh, dynamic USB mics. My favorites are the Audio Technica's. It's either going to be the Audio Technica 2005 USB or the ATR 2100. Um, I look on Amazon, whichever one is the least expensive that day is the one I buy. They are effectively the same microphone. So it, it doesn't, 
um, it doesn't much matter which one you, you go with. They, they look a little bit different, but they all sound the same. There used to be knockoffs. I think you still have one of the Knox audio knockoffs of these. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't think those exist anymore. I can't find them. Right. You know, I have to look, I think I got it at overstock. Mm. Um, Hmm. Of the search and see if they still have it. Yeah. 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 So, um, so that's what I would use. And I would go into audio hijack, which we mentioned in the, in the last question. Um, it's, you know, the, the nice part about audio hijack is also sort of the, the, the learning curve part that you can build anything you want. So I would, I would pull the two microphones as inputs and then I would route them very, very simply. I would just route them to both to the same recording block and you're good to go. If you want to adjust levels, then in line of each of those, you would put a volume block. So you've got microphone volume block into the one recording block and then microphone two volume block two into the recording block. Think of it as kind of all merging together at that recording block. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, you know, that's, and then you can adjust the levels. Then if you want to monitor in your, in your ears, you can add output blocks and this is how audio hijack goes. Hopefully that, that, you know, 30 second description of audio hijack makes sense. They've, they've done a good job when we started podcasting using the predecessor, oddly, I mean, it, at the time it made sense. Now, in retrospect, it seems weird. We were using Audio Hijack Pro. That product doesn't exist anymore. It's all just Audio Hijack. But there was no blocks. You had to think about what the wires would have looked like if you did it in an analog fashion and then do that in a digital fashion. It was very weird. But it would work the same way, just not visually. So this is much better. Um, PJ, jumping back to Andrew's question, PJ at live.macgeekup.com points out that AirPlay is on a delay. It is. You will get some delay. So, yeah, for the karaoke thing, uh, you you might want to use a Bluetooth speaker. That's still on a delay, but I believe it is less of a delay than AirPlay. Um, but, but, yeah, you will have, you know, it's that latency we were talking about before. The more things... You know, it's just how computers work. You got to have buffers. And so buffers add time. That's how it works. So, yes, you're right, PJ. That might be a little weird to have to have that. You might need to use. Um, yeah, Bluetooth. I mean, Bluetooth will still have a delay, but it's potentially less, but it could get echoey. Yeah. Yeah. You might need to wire something in uh, in order to do this in the in the right way. But you could you could put a speaker up at the front of the room and just wire it out of your MacBook and you know, blast it to the, the kids in the back, get line arrays, line arrays are those, those speakers that you see at, at concerts when we used to be able to go to concerts, remember last year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, it's a bunch of like sort of, uh, flat speakers that all kind of hang in a, in an array. And each one of those is aimed at a certain section of the audience. And so like the ones that are aimed at the people in the front are much quieter than the ones that are aimed at the people way in the back. And that's how you get clear sound to an entire arena because they can tune literally each section of the room. Now that your computer does it, they literally put up microphones around the room and just say, okay, go tune. And it, it does it. And then an engineer can kind of go around and, you know, uh, sure he can tweak the, the, the levels as, as deemed appropriate, but yeah, it's pretty cool. So get line arrays for your classroom. It'll be awesome. It'll be everybody. Will love it. Hey, you know, it's necessary in these, in these weird times. So mm -hmm. like I said, lean in, get the line arrays. I would, I want to get some line arrays. I've always wanted line arrays. I don't know. 
yeah. Let's see. Josh was asking about a wireless microphone. Let's see if we can answer this again for teachers. He says, I'm being put in charge of preparing tech for some of our teachers for the upcoming year. They want to be able to teach lessons to in-person students, but also have the capability of capturing these lessons for remote students. I'm figuring that uh, for audio, the best thing for them is to wear a microphone, likely a Bluetooth headset. Are there any that you recommend? Not sure what budgetary funds are allocated to this, so we might be able to shoot for the moon. Uh, thanks for any guidance. Yes, of course. Yeah, Bluetooth headset would be the most convenient from a no wire standpoint. Of course, you know, comfort battery life uh, may or may not be depending on what you want. I think a, a good option would be an around the neck style headset that has the microphone in the neck piece. So you don't have something hanging on your ear all day. You know, if you're just looking to capture that audio, that's definitely going to do it. Um, you know, you don't need something in your ear to hear from. You just need something that's going to capture audio on your body conveniently. And the nice part about those around the neck ones is they have, um, they have, uh, um, you know, bigger batteries usually cause they're, they're not, you know, size constrained because they're trying to fit inside your outer ear. Um, I found one. I have not used this, but um, but I believe Josh has got one and tried it since this question came in. It's it's the Bear 2 foldable necklace, neckband wireless headset with retractable earbuds. So it is a set of headphones because that's probably the easiest way to get it. They're 40 bucks, so relatively cheap. And it's got the microphone in the neckband. So you could just leave the earphones retracted and just use the microphone, pair it up with your Mac or however, you know, whatever kind of computer you're, you're, you're doing. And um, then there you go. I don't know. From Bear 2, B-A-R-T-W-O. I've never heard of them. But for 40 bucks, it's probably worth testing it out and see what happens. And there's a ton of them at Amazon. Just search for um, neckband headset. And you'll, you know, you'll get there. So any thoughts on that, John? Uh, back in the day when I did some audio work or speech recognition work, actually, yeah. I used uh, Shure okay. as a nice, uh, nice array of products, either handheld mic or uh, headset and yep. stuff like that. Yep. I don't have any specific recommendation, but that's what we used. Yeah. And uh, I guess it... I forget what frequency it was. I guess whatever, <laughs> whatever they wanted to use. But, oh, uh, but the, I, so it wasn't Bluetooth. It was it was like their own proprietary plug a dongle yes. in kind of thing. Oh, yeah. All right, well, that's cool. Right, and I'm I'm looking quickly here. So they have either handheld mics or uh, yeah, or a headset, and then yeah, a bass, and then that you would I guess pipe into the computer if you want to and record off of that. That makes sense. Yeah. Huh. Which is what we did. So yeah. we would uh, we would um, we were profiling various uh, speech recognition systems, and so we would use um, it. Served two purposes. One is that we would record audio clips and then submit the audio to each of the engines and see which one did the best. So you know we were we were gauging the accuracy, and then also if we were doing a presentation, you know, demonstrating the technology, we could be wireless and walk around and stuff. Um. Um. Yeah, that was fun. That's good. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I like it. That's good. That's good. All right. We have a ton of follow-ups that I want to get to. And I also want to talk about all of our sponsors, if that's okay with you, Mr. Braun. Okay. 
All right. You know, summer is all about relaxation and whether that means going on vacation or just laying out with a good book, it's time to chill a little bit. Well, this summer, you know, travel plans aren't exactly what they normally are, are they? So you can make your at-home staycation as relaxing as possible and lay out on a comfy new sofa from Burrow, our next sponsor here. Burrow is practical and versatile because you go and pick. If you go on their website, go to burrow.com slash MGG and check it out. They've, they've got like 23,000 different permutations so that you can get everything exactly the way you want it from the fabric to the arm height to the material of the legs to the number of seats. And, and I say fabric, but you can also choose leather. And what's cool is you can swap out things like arm pieces or if you have like a pet incident, you know, even replace things. But the fabric is 100 percent pet friendly, which is super important because our pets are at home with us this summer, too. Of course, it's scratch resistant, stain resistant. They tell me that wine will even come out of this. It's like building blocks. They build most of it for you, but but you sort of put the rest together because, you know, they ship it to you. Yes, they ship it to you. And you can assemble it in minutes by yourself with no tools. Add or remove seats as needed. You can convert a love seat into a sofa or into a sectional and back. And if you use our special link, you get $75 off your borough purchase. Plus, they're fast and free shipping, again, at burrow.com slash MGG. So check out the site for details. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MGG for $75 off. Our thanks to Burrow for sponsoring this episode. I love BB Edit. I love BB Edit 13.1. I know I'm crazy. I love a text editor. But you would only think I was crazy if you hadn't yet checked out BB Edit. Trust me on this. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about them here as our next sponsor, because BB edit it's there to cure what ails you, especially with all your tech stuff. You want to compare files easy and not only easy, but so meticulously put together. You, you tell it, tell me, find me the differences in these two files and it'll show you not just line by line differences, but differences in the same line. So if you've got one of those things that maybe you're trying to compare some like minified JavaScript or something like that. Well, it's all on one line or lots of it is no problem. It, you just scroll through and it scrolls both windows. It's so cool. Like these people that make this are geeks, right? Just like us, but they're geeks about their thing. We're geeks about our thing. And it's so nice to use tools that are built by geeks about the thing that the tool does. I think they even use the tool to build the tool that gets very meta and makes my brain hurt. But that's why they're the geeks on this. And we just get to benefit from all that luscious geekiness. So go check it out. No matter what you need in a text editor, even if it's just for counting words or counting characters, BB Edit is the thing you want to use. Go check it out. Barebones.com. You can download a 30-day free trial from there. Even after 30 days, a lot of the features still work, especially the ones that are sort of more commonplace, to be perfectly honest. So you might be able to just use it for free. But go check it out. Barebones.com. Our thanks to Barebones and BB Edit for sponsoring this episode. Cashfly. We always say that Cashfly provides the bandwidth that gets the show from us to you. They do that, and they have been doing that for well over a decade for us here. Thank goodness. You don't notice them. That's the beauty of it, right? If we didn't have them, you'd notice them. Well, they do more than just 
provide the bandwidth. They do all kinds of things, including increasing the speed of your website with their new web optimization capabilities. All of your content will be optimized before it's delivered to visitors without requiring any development effort from you. And with the recent addition of Cashfly's flexible edge application platform and implementation services, their capabilities reach far beyond those of any traditional content delivery network. They've got APIs so that you can solve all your weird, specific content distribution problems. They'll do all your on-the-fly next-gen image optimization for you, application load balancing, smart asset delivery, all of it. If your website's directly tied to your revenue, and I assume it is, you want to optimize your site's content so that you can get faster speeds. And the good people at Cashfly are even going to provide a free optimization consultation for you just because you're a Mac Geekab listener. That's right, just for you. So you can know exactly where your site stands today with a Lighthouse score report and learn how Cashfly's web optimization solution can help add 60 points instantly to your score. Visit mac.cashfly.com. That's M A C dot C A C A G F L Y dot com. Our thanks. Thanks to Cashfly for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, let's get to some of these tips, shall we? Indeed. I want to, uh, James has one to share. James says, it's probably a quick tip, but uh, he says, when I opened my calendar, I noticed that duplicate birthdays were being displayed for each and every person. After trying many things, this is how I finally fixed it. Open calendar, click preferences, uncheck and then recheck show birthdays calendar at the bottom of the general tab. After doing this, only one birthday is being displayed. I've seen this before. I don't use Apple's calendar primarily, so I don't always see it, but, um, but I, I love the turn it off and turn it on. I love it when that works. That's a handy thing. And it reminds us that, you know, all that's happening when you do that is it's writing a, an entry to a P list file or removing an entry and it probably had an extra entry there, so it cleans it up and, and you're in good shape. So thank you for that, James. Good stuff. Right? Yep. Okay. And uh, Bob has a, a follow-up, which is a useful one. Um, we were talking about the touch bar a while ago and how uh, you can make it do things that you used to be able to do but can't anymore because they got rid of certain keys. Um, the touch bar... Um, has a screen lock button. We mentioned this, Dave, but uh, to put it in context, what the screen lock button does um, that doesn't really advertise is that um, if you tap on it and then you sit around for a while, actually, I found it uh, a matter of seconds, uh, your screen will turn off if nothing happens. Oh. Uh, the reason we mentioned this is that you... Um, uh, is uh, uh, one of our listeners wanted to be able to sleep the screen, but not the computer. Right. And, uh, this looks to do that. Huh. So. That's pretty cool. And that wor that works for you on your, on your MacBook pro. Yes. With ah, fascinating. Yeah. The thing is I couldn't figure out, and I don't know if there's a way to set this. I don't know if you can set the amount of time before it decides that it should shut your screen off. Right. I wasn't able to find a setting for that. Huh. That Again, on my machine, it was, it was just a couple of seconds, a couple of seconds. So. so when you hit that, does it display like a, a thing saying, what do you want to do? And if you just don't do anything, it, it sleeps the screen. Yeah. Well, it, it, it brings you to the, you know, login screen. You oh, know, 
Oh, yeah, right. screen lock. So it locks your screen, and yeah, you either type in your password, or if if it doesn't think anybody's there, then it shuts shuts then the it screen. Shuts down. the screen down, but it doesn't sleep the computer. It just sleeps the screen. Ah, Correct. I wonder, I is there a way? Like, is it in desktop and screensaver? Like, I know there are places. Where you can say, saver, maybe. yeah, sleep the screen, sleep the login screen if no one has said anything. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I might be making things up here. I think I'm making things up, but um, <laughs> I, it feels like that's a that's a setting I've seen before. Is it in security and privacy? Uh, general. No, no, it's not there. Well, show a message when the screen is locked. Um, so, you know, if you go into, uh, system preferences, security and privacy general, there is a checkbox for show a message when the screen is locked. I'm guessing if you had, I don't know, maybe it doesn't make any difference. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. It's good. Indeed. All right. Uh, Richard following up from last week's episode, uh, he says in response to Steve Steven's question, asking about push notifications from one iPhone to another, Steven, Richard correctly points out, Steven just asked about texts and calls, not necessarily third party apps. If they are using the same Apple ID on both phones, then yes, they can receive iMessages at any time on both devices by going into messages settings and choosing which devices, numbers, or email addresses you want to receive messages from. This also works, he says, for FaceTime. For phone calls, you can use Wi-Fi calling, but you would only receive calls from your other phone when both phones are on the same Wi-Fi network. When not under Wi-Fi, you can go to call forwarding from your work phone and put in your personal phone number. I have the same issue, and I don't want to mix my work and personal phone. I like this, Richard. That's I, this is good. This is good. We've got some other answers for this, but, um, but this is good. All right. Um, Brad, uh, addressing the same problem says there is a third party company, an app called you mail. It will act as your message receiver with custom messages, but it will forward to a different phone with a text and also an email. If you want, he says, I use it to forward my emergency calls from the office to me. Thank you, Dr. Brad. That's interesting. Ah, email. Okay. See, I love it. I'd love it when we all come together and solve these problems. This is good. Uh, Allison wrote in and said, um, uh, use, I, I would have sworn we mentioned this in the show, but, but I, I guess we didn't, maybe I dreamt it. Um, I was Allison, thinking it. Okay. There you go. Al, I, I read your thoughts, John. That's what it was. Yes. That's, that's what happened. That's what happened. Yeah. Um, Allison says, use a dual SIM or the eSIM features in the, the newer iPhones to share alerts, right? Cause you could put, um, you know, put one of the numbers on your eSIM and the other number on a regular SIM. And now you've got two SIMs, you know, two numbers to everything and, and everything's right there. So that, yes, that is another solution. Um, perhaps the most obvious one. Uh, I'd like the others because, you know, they, they get creative, but, but that would be sort of the, uh, I bet if you asked Apple, this would be the official solution. So, so anyway, there you go. Good. 
Good. Good. Cool. Thanks everybody on that one. Uh, going back to episode, um, eight twenty six, John about sleeping your max display. This I like, where is Ken? You know, it would be alphabetical, wouldn't it? Uh, Ken says, I wanted to share my own solution to the display sleep question that was asked. And so this would work for people with touch bars too. He says, like a lot of folks, I schedule my disc copies and virus updates and scans during the night when I'm not using my Mac. However, since my Mac mini sits on my desk in my bedroom, this often results in my screen coming to life at 3 a.m., sometimes just as I'm trying to get to sleep. My solution was to create a series shortcut that has one action, run script over SSH, whose script reads PM set display sleep now. I will put this in the show notes so that everybody has the uh, at least the same starting point. And, uh, and he continues, he said, by saving this script with the name sleep computer name, uh, I'm able to turn off the offending monitor with a simple, Hey lady, sleep computer name. Uh, this has made my nights much more tranquil. Of course, for this to work, you do have to allow SSH access in the sharing preference pane. Uh, it says, keep up the great work. Uh, and of course never get caught. So thank you, Kevin. I like it. That's good. That's a, that's a, that's the kind of geeky solution we look for here. <laughs> it's good. But it's not that's not a bad solution. That's um that's you know, using all the interfaces and nice to be able to do from across the room. So mm-hmm. I like that. Any uh any thoughts on that before we continue with these follow-ups here, John? Let's go. Let's go. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> Bob, um in l- the last episode we were talking about changing usernames with listener Robbie, and we mentioned the alias field. In that section in, in uh, what is it? Account settings, John, I, I, I can never remember. So you go to your system preferences, users and groups, right click on your, well, you got to unlock the thing, of course, because that's how that works. Right click and choose advanced options. And in there, you will see um, aliases. Now, uh, Bob tells us how he uses aliases. He says, Uh, The alias field is a way to log in with a different name. He says, so if your short username is Dave, then you could create an alias Dave the nerd and also log in with Dave the nerd, same password, same credentials as Dave. He says, this came in handy for me when I just used my last name as my username on my personal Mac. And then when I joined my current company, they used my first name and middle initials prepended to my last name as the company username. When I went to SSH from my work Mac to my personal Mac, I had to constantly specify my username. So instead of saying, you know, SSH iMac office, he has to say, you know, SSH, uh, you know, whatever, Bob, middle initial last name at iMac office. That is like for, you know, I mean, we're, we're civilized people here, John. We don't want to have to do this. Uh, he says, so I created an alias with my company username on my personal Mac. And now I can SSH in with just the name without needing to with, with the name of the device without needing to specify a username as the default of my work name was now an alias on my personal Mac. He says, I spend a lot of time using SSH and uh, SCP and things like that. He says, so it was very nice to be able to create that alias. Fascinating. Thank you, Bob. I had no idea that definitely was on my one of more than five list for today. So good. 
thoughts on that one, Mr. Braun? Yeah, I, uh, it's good to know that because right now when I look at, at, at least on this machine, there's some weird com.apple.idms.appleid.prd. Bunch of numbers there. And I'm like, I wonder if I wonder if that's the iCloud like ID because you can log into your Mac with your Apple ID from others. So I wonder if that's like the serial number, oh. the serialized version of your Apple ID for that. It sure seems oh. like it, you know. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to touch it. No, I wouldn't mess with that. That. Oh, yeah. You may never see your Mac again. Uh, <laughs> well, per the warning that they have in that dialogue. Oh, does it say? Don't don't. Touch. Oh, it says changing these settings might damage this account and prevent the user from logging in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say that that's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, OK, you know, last week, John, we talked about uh, creative options for increasing your rural broadband speeds. And uh, Gerard, Chuck and many others sent in something we completely missed. I didn't even know about it. Uh, but Gerard writes, he says, I was listening uh, about this and SpaceX spinoff Starlink is building a low Earth orbiting network of satellites to provide high speed Internet. Your reader with the slow Internet problem might want to go to Starlink.com and try to get into the beta program for it. They're looking for email service addresses of people interested in trying it out. He says it looks like there's already substantial interest. He shared a couple of articles and Amazon is planning a similar service, but is further behind so yeah they're saying that this could do you know 600 megabits a second and i guess because they're doing lower earth orbit the latency isn't going to be as much of a problem i'm I'm not quite sure how the tech works that's the feedback that i've gotten from people that uh have used satellite is that the latency is terrible yeah you can't do certain things just because the the round trip is is awful over a second and and stuff yeah that Mm -hmm. the blue Oh, what was the name of the satellite service? Blue Streak or something. I, I, it's, that's not it. But um, I had used one when they had that uh, up at my father-in-law's house on the lake initially before they could get DSL there. And um, and yeah, I mean, you could get a stream going, but like, you know, like you said, latency was, you know, 1.5 seconds, 1500 milliseconds or something. So it was no bueno. So, John, I um. Our timing of last week's discussion was very interesting because we got to this. I mentioned earlier in the show that we took a couple of days and just the four of us went and stayed in this house uh, that we rented on Airbnb in northern rural Vermont. We were two miles from the New York state border and we were even closer than that to Canada um, right on Lake Champlain. We could not cross to Canada because we did not have essential business there. So, uh, we didn't even try, but we drove past the border crossing several times, uh, you know, going to pick up like takeout or something, uh, you know, on the, uh, on mm-hmm. the other side. But, um, they said they had wifi in the Airbnb listing and we get there and, you know, we could get getting settled and unpacking. And my son had for the job that he was doing this summer, he had a couple of zoom calls that he needed to do even during our you know week away. And uh, I checked the bandwidth because I always run a speed test when I connect to a new Wi-Fi network. And they were on DSL there. The, the Wi-Fi signal in the house was great. Like they had bought a separate connection for just this guest house uh, on the property, which is good. Uh, we got a, a full 
full, John, two megabits down and 0.8 megabits up on this Fairpoint. Uh, not Fairpoint. Uh, clear Channel DSL. Yeah. And I'm like, huh, no, I don't think that's going to work for your Zoom call. He tried it and it it like sort of worked. It was OK, but it was like, if anything, it was barely enough and probably just shy of that. Thankfully, our you know, we had had this discussion on the show and talked about different options. And of course, I immediately thought, all right, well, tether to your phone, kiddo. Let's see how that works. Thankfully, even though we only had you know, one, maybe two bars of LTE, but mostly just one, but it was a solid one. Uh, we were able to get, uh, you know, 65 megabits per second down and 25 megabits per second up. So he just tethered to his phone and um, a zoom call for anybody interested takes uh, about one gig of bandwidth per hour is what we're fine. What we found. So totally fine. And totally, thank goodness they had mm. decent cell service there. So, um, the, now the TV was interesting. Netflix had no trouble over the two megabit stream. Hulu had no trouble over the two megabit stream. Surprisingly, and I don't want to say surprisingly, impressively, Plex did the best at figuring out how to navigate that stream. They had a, a Samsung smart TVs uh, there. And first of all, having experienced both L, uh, LG's smart TV and Samsung smart TV interfaces for their newer ones. It, Samsung's is awful. I mean, terrible. They're, like I would not, I'm very happy that I experienced LG first and that we've got LG here at the house. I like, God, like, I don't know what the people at Samsung are thinking, but it's not about user interface for the TV. I mean, it was <laughs> functional, but it was terrible. But, um, so, Plex was amazing. It had, you know, we downloaded the Plex app to the TV between the app and the server. And I'm talking about like my Plex server here at the house. Uh, they ne quickly negotiated the bandwidth between them. And we never had like any artifacts on the screen or any, it, like, it just looked like a great picture, even though it was being, you know, shrunk down to, you know, a fraction of what we would normally see or whatever. Apple TV plus unwatchable on two megabits of bandwidth. It would not scale down appropriately and get there. Like it wouldn't even start playing. It would just time out. Um, one night we wanted to watch something on Apple TV plus. So I tethered the TV to my hotspot on my phone and, and then we could watch it. It was fine. But, um, but you know, yeah. So, so yeah, this, this, so I shared all the details that we, um, that we came up with in the show. And then I saw these emails from Gerard and Chuck and everybody else about Starlink come in. So I shared all that with my Airbnb hosts and was like, Hey, cause they were, fr they're frustrated about it too. They're like, yeah, we used to live in like civilization and, 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 you know, we were able to have like Xfinity. So they don't complain. A lot of people like to complain about Comcast Xfinity. They don't, they don't have any complaints anymore since now that they've experienced, you know, rural quote unquote broadband broadband's a relative term john i think depending on where you are so so there you go wild blue was the satellite service thank you brian monroe that's the one i knew it was blue something so yeah i remember when a t1 was a big deal yeah 1.54 megabits per second right yep yeah yeah i had that thought while we were up there i was like well our connection's faster than a t1 <laughs> <laughs> yeah so is everything else all right uh where are we on time oh yeah we can get through these tips we might even have time for a couple of cool stuffs john hmm. yep 
Um, I'm curious actually about this next one to see if you've experienced this. I definitely did. Kenny writes in, he's been using Eero and he says, just a heads up. My Eros are first gen and I've never had any connection problems before, but lately I was having a problem with losing internet access on my Eero connections. I was still connected to the Eros. So it would associate with them, but I couldn't get to the internet. This would happen on my MacBook pro, my iPhone and my iPad air. And it happened on an almost daily basis, disconnecting and reconnecting from Wi-Fi on the device in question would temporarily resolve the issue. I suspected that my problems might be caused by one of the two beta features I was using, uh, and he had enabled both band steering and WPA3. So, true to troubleshooting nature, he turned them both off, and the problem went away. So now, to figure out which one, he turned band steering back on, problem stayed away, um... And I, it, it, I would agree with him that Eros, at least current implementation of this beta WPA3, WPA2 mode was, is no bueno with uh, at least some Apple devices. I, I, when I was testing it, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago here at the house, I turned on WPA3 and I was having exactly what Kenny describes. I couldn't roam around the house. Um, anytime I jumped to a new thing, it was just like, yeah, no. It's like, hmm. yep, same exact symptom that he saw. And I turned off WPA3 because I knew their band steering was working okay. I turned off WPA3 and um, and it, it exactly the same thing. So uh, do you have that on? Have you enabled that for your Eero yet, John? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And at one point I was like, did I? Mm. So, um, you know, we mentioned it before, mentioned it again, but you, I, I, I see this. So if you hold down option and you click on the airport menu, yeah, one of the things it shows is, oh, uh, security WPA three personal. Okay. Uh, I have not had that issue. Um, I wonder no, if I got, that's... Ton, I got tons of devices. So my phone, my, my computer, but I wonder if your else. devices roam all that frequently. Because I think um, for me, it was when I, I roamed from one access point to another. I see handoff messages. So okay. where do you get those? Dabuki yeah. um, is one tool that will show that. And yeah, I'll see. Or, or is it hardware growler? Uh, one, no, I think it's Dabuki. Okay. Where I'll get a notification and it's like, hey, by the way, you jumped to a different access point. Okay. All right. It shows the old and, and the new one and the MAC address. Um, it's interesting, though, because wpa3 if if you have it available and it, it's worth trying because it offers a lot of benefits security wise okay. um yeah and remind people of this we may have talked about this at some point but even if we didn't uh here's some of the co uh, i think the coolest thing about wpa3 or at least reportedly i'll have to get a packet sniffer um it encrypts a public wi-fi connection it's secure. Oh, it just e kinda... even if you don't have a password for your public Wi-Fi connection. Correct. Uh, yeah. So that's that's one yeah. of the problems with older implementations. Right. Um, and then it has, uh, let's see, uh, I'm looking, uh, I got a little article. I'll link to it here. But uh, yeah, so privacy on public Wi-Fi networks, uh, protection against brute force attacks. Interesting. Uh, easier connection for for devices without displays okay okay and then, uh and higher security i guess 192 bit uh, okay something or other um but the neatest thing is the it you know i mean the easiest way for people to uh maybe sniff your data traffic is if you log into a 
Wi-Fi network without a password. Right. Because with WPA2, no password means that your data connection is not encrypted. It's only encrypted if there's a key in there. And, right. Uh, so WPA3 adds a, a session key no matter what. Yes. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Uh, little write-up claims. Oh, that makes sense. I, yeah, I like it. Okay. Ah, all right. So we should, well, in our homes having, you know, the, the better security is good, but we're all probably using passwords in our homes. So at least there is some security, but for public mm -hmm. Wi-Fi, that's a good thing to check. Ah, see, I'm learning these things, man. This is why I do this show every week. It's good. Well, plus I, I like talking to you. It's good. And, and all of you, it's like, it's, yeah, there's a lot of reasons. It's not the only one, but I do like to feed the brain, you know, feed your head. Isn't that what Alice said? Mm -hmm. Is that what she meant? Just what? That's what Alice 10 meant. feet tall when she's 10 feet tall. When she's 10 feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen to Matt geek. Up. That's what, that's what Alice, Alice said. So like we can't, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. All right. Let's, uh, let's see. It's Stuart. Uh, oh, it, going back a few episodes, he says, in 825, Todd was having issues with color accuracy over HDMI. He says, while I was researching a monitor purchase a while back, I stumbled over, stumbled over, over a video from Ben Q uh, explaining that you should avoid HDMI for color accurate work. According to the video, HDMI can have an issue where the color data gets truncated. RGB color gets chopped from zero to uh, from zero to 255 to 16 to 235. Perhaps this is a contributory factor in Todd's color accuracy conundrum. Say that 10 times fast. That's got good mouthfeel. Color accuracy conundrum. Uh, it would seem that this isn't always the case and can depend on individual hardware. BenQ uh, video recommended either using DisplayPort or USB-C where possible as they have more bandwidth available. Interesting. Ah, that, that, that certainly fits with some of the things we've seen in that it's not a hundred percent, but some of the time. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, I got one more on our list, John of, of uh, follow-ups here. Anything to add to that one? Okay. Uh, no, I, I, uh, I seem to have gotten extra bits with my HDMI connection. I don't know. Well, you're living, you're living the dream over there, man. It's good. WPA. Yeah, I think I told works. you. Yeah, when I look in display, I think it says I got 30 bits. It's like, wow. Okay. So I got extra bits, man. You, you, I don't know where, where yeah. they came from. Oh, well, you bought them. Yeah, you, you spent <laughs> the extra money on them. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, Mitch writes. Uh, he says, I just listened to Mac Geek Up 825, and I have a comment uh, for your section of the podcast about best implementations of two-factor authentication. While this tip might not be helpful for the person who already has 37 previously registered sites in Google Authenticator, while going forward, this can help greatly. Uh, is, is, it's a tip from, of course, Steve Gibson at GRC, who suggested a solution in March 2017 of printing or somehow saving screenshots even of the QR codes that you use to register the site. So those QR codes have uh, essentially a URL in them that sends that, that that tells your one time password generator the code and frequency to use to match the one time password generator on the other end. And so if you save those QR codes or if you if you convert them to URLs and save the URL, 
as long as something can import the URL, uh, like a one password or something, then you're good to go. Mitch says uh, he's been using this method since 2017 and it works to perfection. It helps not to get caught. Yeah. So I would say both the URL and the QR code because that way you got them all covered. So thanks Mitch. Good stuff. Uh, we have a, we have a, a I'm going to jump us to cool stuff found here, John, even though we're sort of running out of time because uh, we have a follow up to that exact thing. Uh, as Mitch mentioned, Karsten was using Google Authenticator and couldn't sync his two factor codes to a new device. Uh, Gary and many, many others of you, uh, of course, recommends uh, he says, I'm a one password user, so I could have done it that way, but doesn't like the idea of using one app for both factors of authentication because that sort of defeats the purpose at some level. I totally get it. He says, but I replaced Google Authenticator with an app called Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, which does synchronize across all my devices. So synchronizing across devices is also a potential security vector, right? Because the more places that data exists, the greater potential of of, of a breach. But keeping it from being in the same app as your password sort of honors the concept of two-factor authentication a little better. So, yeah, that's good. Thank you, Gary, and everybody who recommended Authy for, uh, for that because it, that certainly seems like the right, the right answer. All right, John, should we, uh, should we blow through a couple of cool stuff's found here? Sure. Okay. Uh, Steve shares with us some, well, if we go back a couple of years, we would be very, very happy about this news. But uh, Steve shares, he says, I got my tidbits newsletter and it announced the release of Fujitsu scan snap manager seven for Catalina. Um, he says, I've been hobbling along, keeping my old but still working ScanSnap S510M scanner via a Parallels instance of Mojave. Until now, this was the only way to keep my ScanSnap running using the Fujitsu software, which ran better than any third-party app I've found. But it was stuck in 32-bit land and thus not usable in Catalina until now. Version 7, he says, worked perfectly with the new software. And uh, there you go. He says, I'm happy to have this functioning natively again. So, good news, I think. So... Does your your ScanSnap scanner was in this purgatory too, John, or was yours one of the ones? No. That um, okay. Well, the other option, and and we had some people I think write in about this. So they introduced a new piece of software called uh, ScanSnap Home. Okay. And that is sixty four bit, so you can run it under Catalina. Unfortunately, the feedback I've gotten from a couple of people is that it's very picky about which scanners it supports. Right. And it doesn't support, which is weird because it's like, you know, it's from the same company. So it's like, and, and why would you exclude certain scanners from the 64-bit software? Um, mine fortunately worked. With okay, so you weren't, home. you weren't stuck in that. Got it. Okay. But yeah, I guess they purged some very old, uh, because yeah, ScanSnap scanners, uh, for the most part, are not standards compliant. So you have to use, you have to use their software in order right. to get its work. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right, cool. Um, John, we have a, a cool stuff found uh, recommendation, but it is, it is definitely a cool stuff found reprise. I am pretty sure this is the very first thing we ever mentioned 
as cool stuff found. And in fact, I think we mentioned it once before we even thought of the concept of cool stuff found, but, uh, but listener Dan was writing in and says, um, I've got, uh, old Microsoft word, like 5.1 files and cricket graph files. And I need to know how to convert those to some usable format. Do you know of a service? And so this brings us back to our very first cool stuff found, which is Zamzar at Z-A-M-Z-A-R dot com. I think we were in single digit episodes when we first stumbled on and mentioned Zamzar, John. Um, it, it's got thousands of different file converters there, and I've used it many times over the years. I don't know if it'll do exactly what, what Dan needs, but uh, but. You know, that's the place to start. If you need, if you don't have the apps and you need to convert something to something more compatible, try Zamzar. Uh, you do have to upload your file to them. So if it potentially has, you know, confidential information or whatever, you need to make that distinction and, and decision on your own. But, uh, but yeah, there you go. So mm-hmm. Zamzar, cool stuff found. Blast from the past. It's good. Uh, another blast from the past on cool stuff found comes from Gary who says, uh, thank goodness for Doug's scripts at dougscripts.com. Uh, he says, have you any idea how miserable it would be to correct typos on 400 versions of some song in your iTunes or music library? You don't need to know because Doug scripts has a script to fix this for you. And indeed Doug's uh, been making Apple scripts for iTunes and now all of Apple's media apps. Uh, for years. And so if you need to do a batch job on some of your media, music, movies, whatever, check Doug scripts first. If they don't have the exact thing you need, they might have something you can download and, and kind of look at the code and, and tweak it. So we love Doug scripts. So thank you for sharing that, Gary. Good stuff. Any thoughts on that, John, before we, uh, before we take our last one? All right. Well, there is one final one for today, and that is cool stuff found. Really, it's cool stuff made from uh, listeners Allison and Bart. It's sent to us by Allison uh, over at Podfeet for years. She's been doing a, a podcast with Bart Bouchotts called Taming the Terminal. And now they've released a book with all of the tips and things that they learned from Taming the Terminal. So, uh, so we've put a link for that. It's available on, uh, Apple books and they've got Kindle and PDF and HTML versions available too. So congrats on the no, release of the book. No, no analog version. Oh, it, uh, probably it at Amazon. I mean, Amazon. So, uh, not to steal the spotlight, but I'll, I'll join the thunder at my uh, other, one of my other podcasts, small business show. We, uh, we just released our first book and we're actually on our way to releasing our second. We released a book about mistakes because it's one of the things we love the most uh, is all the lessons that we learn from the stupid mistakes we make. And so we put our favorite mistakes that have been shared by us and our guests on the show. We ask every guest on the show, do you, you know, what's your favorite mistake? And, and so we collected our favorites and we put them out there and we put it in the Kindle publisher uh, at Amazon. But, you know, I've got hard copies of the book. They print them up and, you know, so. I, I would imagine taming the terminal unless I, I think Allison can check a box, whether they want to allow print copies or not. But I think Amazon very much wants to have print copies. Um, I've got another friend who is uh, actually the same friend that, that my co-author and the person who sort of drove the bus on this, my co-host Shannon Jean over at, at small business show. He um, he's got another book. He, he has a business selling on Poshmark and he wrote a book about Poshmark and uh 
he found that Amazon had lowered the price on his print book because more people were buying it that way. He gets the same royalties, but Amazon was like trying to goose sales of it. So they like mess with hmm. pricing. Yeah. They, they just took like a lower cut. I don't know something. Maybe, maybe I'm interpreting it all wrong, but, um, but yeah, Amazon likes to have, you know, options for everybody. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think that's, uh, I don't know. Uh, that's what, we, that's what we got for, uh, for now. So, uh, right. I think we're, uh, we're, we're good for today, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Let's see if I can bring the band in. Yeah, they are. There they yeah, go. I found the band. It's good. They were right over there. There, there somewhere. I don't really? know. Really? No, I don't know. You left them outside sweating. Oh man. Well, social distancing, Terrible. John, they've got to, you know, <laughs> how it works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, thanks to everybody who sent in questions and tips and cool stuff found today. That's how we do what we do. So very, very fun and very, very good stuff. Thanks for visiting all our sponsors. Of course, the ones in the episode, burrow.com slash MGG, barebones.com, mac.cashfly.com. What, what, what's wrong, John? Did I get it wrong? <laughs> okay. What did I get wrong? No, I did. I did. Oh, oh okay. I'm still trying to figure out the camera. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, there, it's, we go. there it is. There I know. Him. Yeah, doing this video thing. I have to look at where my microphone is and decide which way to point based on that. Oh, right. Okay. Like I see that my microphone in the camera is to my right, but uh, in my face it's to my left. So if mm -hmm. I want to point at you, I have to do that. It's very mm -hmm. weird. Very weird. For those of you that want to watch this on video, it is available on YouTube, our Mac Geek Cab podcast channel there, uh, Facebook as well. We stream it live, audio and video, when we record. Uh, we try our very best to make sure that all the content is valuable via audio. But uh, but sometimes it's fun to talk about the video and, and that sort of thing. So feel mm -hmm. free. They, they, they're up. And, I mean, yes, they are on YouTube and Facebook, but you can just see them at MacGeekUp.com. We link them in the articles and all that stuff. I guess we should put them up as a downloadable feed, too. I didn't even think about that until right now. Huh. Quarantine project number 52. All right. I, <laughs> hey, you know, why not? That's, uh, that's how we'll do it. All right. Uh, what else do we have here, John? You know, if you want to send us a voicemail, you can do it one of two ways. You can download the Mac Geek Gab iOS app, which is free. Uh, and that has an easy way to record and send in audio comments. Or you can call us at 224-888-GEEK, which, John, is? 4335. That is correct, my friend. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us. Thanks to uh, check out all our other sponsors at MacGeekUp.com slash sponsors. We keep a list there of all the active deals, even if they're not active sponsors, just so that you get your deals. It's good. Sometimes sponsors call us and ask us to take them off that list because they're like, you know, people are still finding these deals. Like, yeah, if they're <laughs> active. We're going to tell them about them. John, we've shared a lot of advice in this episode. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, any, any other advice to share? Um, yes, I do. Okay. And it consists of not one, not two, but three words. And those three words are don't get caught. Made up. Seems legit to me.